Our scripture today comes from Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we continue our series in the book of Acts. While you're turning, the choir just sounded beautifully as they lead us in worship each week, and we are so grateful. Uh, They don't just show up and sing. They actually come and rehearse and work and, and and are diligent in being able to help create an environment where we can worship our God. And so we're grateful to our choir and to Dr. House and Dr. Rizal for helping lead. And then to watch Jim Vivian get up here and tear up a piano periodically is always fun. I came in just a moment ago and uh, Meredith was up here leading part of the worship. And, and I leaned over to Nancy and I said... I think it might be the first time I've seen her with her stole on since she's been back. So, you know, here's the thing that that you might want to know is uh, just a few weeks ago when we had our annual conference, Meredith was ordained uh, as a deacon in the life of the church. And um, that is not a little process. From the moment you begin to say, I am called into ministry, you start meeting with the district committee every year. And then after you've gone to seminary with some guidance and other things, you go before the conference board of Board ministries, submitting sermons and studies and theological papers, columnist life papers, all these different things. And, and then if you're, if you're approved by the board, you're commissioned. Uh, and then three years or so later, a minimum of three years, uh, you can go back before the board of Board ministry with another 70 pages with sermons and studies and theological answers to show how, yes, I knew that academically, and here's how I'm now applying that in my ministry and in my life and how I see God at work in the world. And, uh, and if you're approved by the board, you can be ordained. When you are ordained, when the bishop, the bishop will lay hands on you, you kneel down at the altar rail, the bishop will lay hands on you. I think you had like four bishops. For some people, it takes a little more. Um, yeah, they were like... There were like four bishops, but our bishop, you know, was in the center, and uh, there were some guest bishops that were there as well, laid hands on her, and I had the privilege of uh, standing behind her, laying hands on her shoulders as well, and um, when you then stand up, the bishop will place the stole around your neck. The stole is symbolic of the authority of God, which is why a lot of times you'll see, if you see a priest doing last rites, you'll see them pull out a stole, place it around their neck. When we do a wedding, I wrap the couple's hands with the stole. It shows the symbolism of the authority of God. And what a privilege it was to come in and see Meredith up here now with her stole around her neck because she has been deemed by the church as one ordained by God for ministry. So, proud of you. So now she is completely holy. You have any questions, she will answer them. (laughs) Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, where Luke, who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, writes, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it 
and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and to sit beside him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his own way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns, until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and the privilege of studying it together. And now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Who mentored you in the faith? Who was it that told you something about Jesus Christ? I mean, who was it that that began to guide you a little bit in your understanding of of who Jesus is? You're, You're here today. And the fact that you're here today means that at some point, somebody said something, did something in some way to help influence you, to shape you, to guide you, to lead you, to draw you here to grow in faith and worship. Who is that person? And as you think of that person, give thanks to God for them. I was blessed. I've shared with you before. I I grew up with Christian parents. I grew up with Jesus. I had two uncles as well that were ministers. Now what's funny is they're brothers. They're my mom's brothers. And, and, And one of them is a United Methodist minister who lived just south of Asheville in Fairview. The other one was a missionary Baptist preacher who, who lived in Bryson City near Cherokee. Now, you want to talk about some interesting family conversations. You put a United Methodist preacher and a not Southern Baptist, missionary Baptist preacher side by side. And you're going to have some dynamics, or as we refer to it in our family, passionate dialogue. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and I loved it, to be honest with you. I loved when they would get together and and they would have conversation and sometimes I would try to prompt the conversation with a question or or get a debate because I was always amazed how is it that both of you teach the same book but there are things that you see so differently in it and and I loved that. I loved 
having these mentors and, and teachers who could teach me the faith. And when I began the ministry, my uncle, the Methodist minister uncle, he had moved his library to my grandmother's house, which is where he was going to be retiring. It was actually his farm. And, and, and so he goes, you know, here's the key. Here's the key. You can help yourself. And so I had great mentors in my life. I had wonderful Sunday school teachers when I was growing up. I, got, I had the privilege of doing homecoming at my home church a couple weeks ago. And, and some of my Sunday school teachers are no longer living, but their adult kids were there. And, and just to be able to think about those stories of, of, the, of the teachers who were willing to sit down at those little tables and teach me about Jesus Christ. And to introduce me to the faith. And then as I grew up, and, and I remember when I was a youth, we were, we were asked, you know, who, who's somebody that you would like to teach? Because when you're in a small little country church, you know, it, it helps to coerce, I mean, to uh, encourage the person to, to teach Sunday school. If you go, you know, the kids would love to be taught by you. And, and I remember this farmer, Sam, Sam Martin, that we picked. I mean, we just, there was something about Sam. He was an older gentleman in the church, but we all knew that guy knows Jesus. And so Sam taught our youth group. I mean, he taught us Sunday morning Sunday school class. I had great mentors. And when I went off to college and seminary then, I, I had amazing mentors helping to shape and mold my life. Rex Matthews taught me John Wesley's theology. And, and, and when he would teach Wesley in theology, at, at times he would be reading something that Wesley wrote or, or one of the hymns that Charles Wesley wrote. And, and his voice would crack. And he'd actually have tears coming down his cheeks i'm going whoa this is not just academic the guy really believes this stuff and it would draw you into it fred craddock could take the scripture and and make it come to life for you and don selliers with worship could teach you everything about how even your gestures make a difference shirley guthrie was my advisor in my doctoral program and he was a great renowned theologian wrote the book christian doctrine that so many seminaries use today and Walter Brueggemann was, was one of my Old Testament scholar, professor, mentors. and I, I never was really in love that much with the Old Testament, but there was something that when he taught it, I mean, he just drew you right into it and gave me that hunger for it. And I had colleagues, pastors when I was growing up that were mentors of mine and, and church members, lay people. I mean, some of y'all, I mean, it's amazing. You, you often think, I bet, that that clergy are brought here to teach and lead you, but I think sometimes clergy are sent to a church so the lay people can teach the, teach the pastor. I mean, there are so many of you that have these amazing walks with Jesus Christ and these life experiences. And, and I've had mentors that were lay people in almost every church that I have served. God is constantly setting up these opportunities for us to have people who mold and shape our lives and, and, and guide us in our relationship with Christ and then people that, that God places in our lives that we can guide and shape as well. Here in the scripture, Philip has just left Samaria. You might remember from last week, we were looking at that scripture in the beginning of chapter 8. And, and Philip had been there preaching to the Samaritans. They were a despised group of people that, that most of the Jewish folks would, would, would walk miles around their land. They considered that if they stepped foot on a Samaritan's property, they were now unclean. I mean, they were just despised and rejected. And yet Philip goes there and proclaims Jesus Christ. And when he does, the people accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. They're baptized into the faith, and then the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And God does some amazing things. So now Philip has left Samaria, 
And God calls him again. Now pay attention in the scripture to how involved God is in this whole process. And God says to Philip, I want you to get up and go to the road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza. And he doesn't explain why. A lot of times, we, our first response will be, well, Lord, if, you know, give me the plan. Tell me why. Tell me what we're doing. What are we up to? Philip doesn't know why. He just knows God's leading me to do this, so he goes. He goes down and he gets on this road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And, and while he's there, he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, realize when we read the scripture that this is not one of those stories about this marginalized, outcast person that once again encounters faith, because that's not what this story is about at all. This Ethiopian is a very prominent person, and Ethiopia, now again, picture you've got Israel up here with the Mediterranean Sea, and, and you come down and you have Egypt, and then south of Egypt, you, you're going to get into Africa and Ethiopia. It was considered to be an exotic land, with exotic people living there, with an amazing lifestyle. And this is a prominent person. He's an official in the queen's court. He has power. He has influence. He's over all the treasury. He's in a chariot. That's one of the ways we know he's, he's affluent as well, or, or has influence, because he's not walking. He's being driven. Not only does he have a chariot, he has a driver. I don't have a driver. He has a driver that's leading him along. So, so this is a prominent, influential person, and, and, and he's leading through here. Now, the thing you need to know about Ethiopia at the time as well, because remember, we're talking about days before you would fly somewhere or drive somewhere. Most transportation is on foot, if you're lucky, by chariot. So imagine the journey to go from Israel through Egypt, down into Africa to Ethiopia, that, that's quite a journey. So Ethiopia was considered to be the ends of the earth. Kind of like where I grew up. I mean, we, we actually served a church one time that people go, where is that? And go, go to the jumping off point and take one step. I mean, we're, we're, right at, well, we're at the end of the world. We're, we're out there. Well, Ethiopia was considered at the time to be out there because for, for the people there in the Mediterranean, that was such a distant land. It was considered the ends of the earth. Hold on to that phrase. The ends of the earth. It was the Timbuktu of the time. So here's this Ethiopian, and he is a eunuch. That means he's, he's a castrated man, and, and that's because sometimes they, they would go through that process, it would remove temptations, and, and, and then the eunuch would be placed over the queen's businesses, or... It would be placed over, for example, the harem of the king. And so here's this man. Now, he's been in Jerusalem, we're told, to worship God. Now, what I want you to hear about that is, again, remember, this was not like, I'm going to go over to Jerusalem. This was quite a journey through Egypt and around and up into Israel to get to Jerusalem. This man loved God. To go through that kind of journey, this man was hungry for his faith. But what's interesting when he went to Jerusalem to worship is he couldn't fully worship. Why? Because he was a eunuch. And, and the scripture says in Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, I'm going to read it in the international version because some of the other versions get really graphic. But Deuteronomy 23 1 says, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. 
So in other words, he made this whole journey up to Jerusalem, but he's not allowed really on the inside of worship. He's worshiping on the periphery of worship. On the outside, that outer court, worshiping but not fully inside. But his faith was so important to him. So as he's leaving, he's in his chariot on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and what's he doing? Reading the Scripture. Now, again, hang on to the fact that 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 says this man is rich. Because he had the scroll. And you have to remember, this was before the days of the printing press. People didn't often have a copy of the Scripture for themselves. Because that meant that, that you had to hire a scribe to take a copy of the Scripture and hand copy it letter by letter, word by word, onto a new scroll. And most people couldn't do that. This is before Amazon. This was before you could buy now one click and have it here in two days because I'm prime. Now, that, this, this was that meant something. And he's studying the Scripture. So he's, he's riding down the road. The chariot driver's driving. And he's intensely studying the Scripture, reading the Scripture out loud. Scripture was originally read out loud. Most people, as I said, didn't have a copy. And, and he's reading the Scripture out loud. I love to do that today. I love to be able to get alone somewhere and be able to read the Scripture, but read it out loud. Because when I read silently, I read really quickly. Too quickly sometimes. But to read out loud, you, you slow down, but not only do you read it, you hear it. And it's amazing the difference that it'll sometimes make. So he's reading the Scripture out loud, and God, once again, speaks to Philip and says, Now, you see that guy in that chariot up there? Yeah, run up there to him. What am I to do? Tell you later. Run up there to him. So he, he goes running up there to him, and, and he hears him reading the Scripture from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. That's the Scripture that he's reading. It, it's talking about the lamb that was slaughtered, and, and the sheep before the shearers didn't say anything, and... And so Philip runs up and he hears him reading the scripture and he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch looks at him and says, how can I unless somebody guides me? How can I unless somebody guides me? I mean, I think that's a great question. In our world today, almost everybody has a Bible. As a matter of fact, studies show that most people in America have a Bible in their home somewhere. And if we don't have the Bible this way, many of us have it on our phones. I mean, we have the app. I have three different apps on mine. I have three different app, Bible apps on my phone because I like the way this one does it better than that, but this one does it better than this, and that one does it better than this. And, and, and so depending on what I'm trying to do, I mean, I got the Word all over me. Most people have the Scripture in front of them, but that doesn't mean we understand it. The man had Isaiah. He had just been worshiping, studying the Scripture all the way home, and he's asked, do you understand what you read? How can I? So he invites Philip to join him, to sit beside him. Now, that's important. When we think about mentoring the faith, that we understand this. Mentoring someone in the faith does not mean that we're way over here 
And we're looking back and going, you're way back there, but come up here where I am. You need to get where I am spiritually. So many times we, we think that to mentor somebody means we've got all the answers and, and, and somebody else doesn't. Some of you heard me tell the story before about uh, there were two ladies in, in one of my previous churches. Actually, my last church. There were two ladies in the church that were just really into it. I mean, they were really into it. I mean, it was, it was quite a battle going on between the two of them. To the point that I invited them, come in, let's talk. We need to talk. So, you know, they come into the office. I had one of my associates come in who was female to sit there with me so that, that we could have this conversation. It's like, woo, you know, here we go. And, and so they're sitting there and, and, and they were just really going. And then finally, one of the ladies looked at the other one and, and she, she said, can I see your hands? Hold out your hands. And, and, and the other lady held out her hands and she goes, here's the deal. My spirituality is here. And she took one of her hands and held it up here. And she goes, and your spirituality is here. And, and held it down low. And she goes, and this is the problem. And I'm sitting there going, whoa. <laughs> I can't believe what I'm hearing. And, and so, you know, sometimes you say things before you really think it through. And so I just said, I think you got it backwards. I think it's here. It was right after that I moved to Weddington. <laughs> so... You know, I said, but I did. I, I said, I think you've got it reversed. Because the moment we move into spiritual arrogance, we actually show our spiritual ignorance. The moment we move into spiritual arrogance, we actually reveal our spiritual ignorance. Walking with someone in the faith, mentoring somebody in the faith, does not mean we have arrived and we stand at the destination telling other people, get up here where I am. The eunuch said to Philip, get on board and sit beside me. That word to educate, some of your educators, means to walk alongside of. It means we join someone in the journey together. None of us have arrived, but we can move together on the journey. And Philip then begins to share with him, let me tell you about the Scripture. And he takes that Scripture and talks about how God so loved the world that His only Son became the Lamb. The Lamb that was, who was sacrificed, who died on a cross that we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. And, and he explains what the Scripture says as good news. Gospel. The word is euangelion, which means the good news. Sometimes when we teach the faith, it sounds anything but good news. Man, I remember I, there were a couple of revivals that I went to when I was a kid, and it sounded anything like good news. I mean, it, it, it was kind of like, look, you've messed up. You're in a hole. You're bad. Unless you get straight, here's where eternity is. And eternity is a long time. Have you ever thought about, you know, how, you know, when you're going through a hard time, you go, but, but it's going to get better. It's going to get better. In eternity, it's not going to get better. Do you understand that it's not going to get better? And you think there's a heat wave outside. You haven't experienced heat yet, preacher. I'm going to tell you, brother. I mean, it, it sounded like any, you, you better get right with God. Now, People got right because they were terrified. But it didn't sound like good news. See, the good news 
is that we have a God who's so loved that God intervened to keep anyone from ever experiencing death. See, that's the good news. Philip explains the good news and this Ethiopian man, he, he accepts Jesus Christ and, and then they come up and they see some water and he goes, look, there's some water up there. And he goes, what's to prevent me from being baptized? I, that question is so telling. He didn't say, look, there's water. I want to be baptized. Look, there's water. Please baptize me. He says, look, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Because all his life, he has been prevented from something. Because you're a eunuch, you can't quite get into worship. I mean, you can make the journey, you can get close, but not quite inside. Because you're Ethiopian, you can get here, but not quite there. Because you're this, you can get here, but not quite there. And so he asks, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And, and it's almost like he's expecting Philip to say, well, what's going to prevent you is one, you're not Jewish, two, you're not, and three, you're not, and four, you're not, and five, you're not. But he just met Jesus Christ. And the good news is, there's nothing to prevent you from being baptized. You are now part of the kingdom of God, the family of God. And, and the man is baptized, and, and he's now brought into the most inner of the inner circles. You're now a child of God. There's nothing that stands between you and God. That's called the grace of God. Well, we're told when they came out of the water, the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch then couldn't see him anymore but the eunuch went home rejoicing now it's interesting church tradition holds that the Ethiopian eunuch returned home to Africa to Ethiopia there and became the founder of the Ethiopian church and when you go to Israel you'll see the prominence of the Ethiopian Orthodox church there around some of the holy sites and when you do some of the study they'll tell you about how early it was in the faith that Christianity came there because, well, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip on the road between Jerusalem and Gaza, and he brought home the faith. He brought home the faith. Eusebius, who was the bishop of Caesarea in Palestine around year 275 to 339 A.D., so early in the, in the history of the church, and he was a historian, loved to document the history of the church, he shared that this Ethiopian eunuch was the very first missionary to Africa. Now what's interesting about that is, is remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, now you're to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and to Judea. And last week we were where? Samaria. And then to where? To the ends of the earth. And remember that, that in these times, I shared with you a minute ago, hold on to that phrase because... Well, the people there around the Mediterranean in Israel believed that Ethiopia was the ends of the earth. And God actually says then to Philip, hey, you've just left Jerusalem. You've been in Samaria. Get up and get on the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza because there's an end of the world coming a guy. There's an end of the earth kind of guy that's going to be coming through there. And you witness to him and he'll take the gospel to the rest of the world. And he does. And proclaims Jesus Christ. Will Willimon, a biblical scholar and theologian who wrote commentary as well on Acts, says that, that a new family, a new nation is being constructed here by the expansive work of the Holy Spirit and nothing keeps anyone out. This good news is for all of us.
So part of our mission statement in our church is that we proclaim the gospel of grace. We worship God with passion. We intentionally grow in our faith. We proclaim the gospel with grace and we humbly serve in love. That's the four tenets of what we try to do here as a church. Proclaiming the gospel of grace, though, is it's such a vital part of who we are. Is how do we, we share this faith? Because there are a lot of people out there that, that have this book in their homes and you go, hey, do you understand this? And they go, how can I without somebody to guide me? That, that's the role of the church. How can we without somebody to guide us? Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, that we're to go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And he goes, and hey, I'll be with you every step of the way. I'll be with you to the ends of the age. Not sending you out there by yourself. Will Willimon goes on to say, Though the Holy Spirit reaches out and draws people toward God, somebody has got to interpret. Someone must name the name and tell the story of Jesus. I love that. Though the Holy Spirit reaches out and draws people toward God, somebody's got to interpret. Someone must name the name and tell the story of Jesus. Do you understand what you're reading? How, how can I? Unless somebody guides me. I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he had Barnabas. Barnabas was willing to teach and lead him. And, and then there was Apollos who was so eloquent in teaching the faith, but he didn't quite have it all just exactly right. So Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and they mentored him and they taught him. And Timothy, while Timothy had been raised by a great grandmother who taught his faith and, and then his mother passed down the faith, but then Paul took him under his wings. He had Paul. He had Paul as a mentor. It, it's been said that, that every one of us need to have a Barnabas, somebody who's mentoring us, and a Timothy, somebody that we're mentoring. We need a Barnabas, somebody that helps lead us. I still have mentors in my life. I'm not there yet. I need people that will walk with me and, and, and help me grow in my faith and help me see things that I'm missing. So we all need to have a Barnabas. But then who are the people we're helping to lead as well? God places in our lives people to lead us, but God places people in front of us for us to lead. George Morris and Eddie Fox wrote a book called Faith Sharing. They knew if they called it evangelism, nobody would buy it. So they called it faith sharing, and they said that, that every day, every day, every one of us have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ. Every day. The problem, they said, is we're just typically not paying attention to it. Like, just being able to say, I, I've got a family member who's, who's dealing with this. Would you, would, you say, would you keep them in your prayers? That, that opens a door for conversation about God. Or, or when we meet somebody for lunch, even when it's a business lunch, if we just go, do you mind if I say a blessing real quick? Because all, all you're doing is you're not trying to be offensive, but you're going, I, I believe in God, and, and, and I want to ask God to bless this. And it, it opens up the door, because you just told somebody, I'm a Christian. It opens up the door. And, and, and there are so many ways that we can, we can share our faith. I often wear the Weddington shirts that we have that have the church logo and the name on them. And it's not marketing for the church, it's marketing for Christ because it'll open up the door where somebody will go, do you go to that church? And, and I'll go, yes, I do. And they'll go, well, we've been thinking about coming there. And I'll go, you should, the pastor there is incredible. 
And the fact that you laughed at that hurts deep. <laughs> but now, you know, it'll, it'll open up the door and somebody go, do you go to that church? Yes. Would you, would you keep my brother in your prayers? He's in rehab. Or would you keep my sister in prayers because she was just diagnosed with cancer? Or would you keep my mom? And all of a sudden it opens up this door where faith can enter a conversation. I had in my previous church some executives at Lowe's Home Improvement because the headquarters was there in Mooresville and, 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 the, and they would drink coffee with a church coffee mug and, and, and their point was, you know, we really you know, can't just go around and promote who we are and what we believe but, but when they drank out of a church mug they told everybody there, this, I'm a Christian and here's where I go to church. That's why we call it our silent witness program here. I mean, the main point of it is, is people are looking. I had a church member send me just the other day a TED Talk and I watched it, you know, just to, to kind of see it. And, and, and their point was, is, is look how hungry the secular world is to try to find meaning. And, and this lady was giving a TED Talk. She actually does a really good job. And, and she's talking about, you know, there's, there's got to be more to life. And, and, and then she lays out, you know, here are four things that we need in our life. And she lays out the points. And, and as I listen to her, I'm going, yeah, but the thread that's missing is Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, that's important. This is important. This is important. And that's important. But what ties that all together is our relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. People are searching. Pope Francis, the Catholic Pope, wrote a book called The Joy of the Gospel. And in the book, he encourages Christians to recover, and I think this is beautiful, the delightful and comforting joy of evangelizing. I mean, just sharing our faith. But delightful and comforting joy in doing that. It's not some awkward obligation. It's a delight. To be able to share. And the Pope goes on to say, and may the world of our time, which is searching, sometimes with anguish, sometimes with hope, be enabled to receive the good news, not from evangelizers who are dejected, discouraged, impatient, or anxious, but from ministers of the gospel, meaning clergy or laity, whose lives glow with fervor, who have first received the joy of Christ. So who are the people that mentored you and thank God for them? But who are the people that God has put before you? Maybe your spouse. You know, we, we walk our journey together and if, if we're life partners, shouldn't we be faith partners as well? And so is it our spouse that we sit alongside of on this, this journey with our God? Our children, just... Just a few minutes ago, I had the privilege of baptizing two children from two different families. And the parents stood there and vowed to God and to the body of Christ. We will raise our child in the Christian faith and the Christian life. We will teach them. We'll have them in a Christian home. We'll do everything we can to nurture this faith. So is it your children? Or maybe it's, it's a class or a life group or a study of some kind or Maybe it's an opportunity there. I mean, sometimes we think, I can't do that because, well, I've got to have all the answers. No, you don't. You sit beside of somebody, you walk beside of somebody, and you do the journey together. People who have all the answers are the people that scare me to death. I want people that are walking with me on the journey, not someone who foolishly thinks they've arrived. So maybe that's the place. Maybe it's with children. I, I, I'm amazed. Uh, sometimes when our children's minister, Carolyn, shares, you know, that you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find people willing to serve in children's ministry. I'm going, wow, 
How can that be? I mean, what greater privilege is there than to be able to sit down with a child and teach the faith? I am where I am today because somebody sat down on a little chair at a little table and talked to me about Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is to be able to, to help mold and shape a life. I mean, Jesus had a passion for kids and, and to be able to watch them crawl up on his lap and be embraced in his arms. What a privilege. And with youth, I mean, to be able to walk alongside of a teenager who's grown up maybe hearing some of the stories of the faith, but now they're trying to figure out how you live that in a world that seems to be unchristian. And to be able to walk that journey with them and to be able to go, no, I don't have all the answers either. I mean, when you get to be an adult, it won't be much different, but let's walk this thing together. I mean, what a privilege. What a sacred privilege. You see, Philip went running up beside this guy. Great guy. He had just been to worship. And all the way home was reading Isaiah. Philip goes, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, how can I? How can I? Unless somebody will guide me. Why don't you sit up here beside me? And he's led to experience Jesus Christ. Somebody is asking you, crawl up here and sit beside me. And let's do this journey together. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful because you place someone in our lives to help get us to where we are today. We are here to worship you. Somebody helped us to understand enough of what this hunger and this thirst for righteousness is. Someone helped us to understand this restlessness in our hearts. And as Augustine taught, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And God, we're grateful for those people that helped to shape us and to continue to shape us even today. And God, there are people who are looking to us. Many of them have the Bible in their homes, maybe even on their phones. Do you understand it? How can I unless somebody will guide me? And God, we know if, if we don't feed them, somebody will. So God, we pray that you would help us to see those people you place in our lives and that through your Spirit you will guide us to run up alongside their chariot, hop in and sit beside them on an amazing journey of faith. We give you thanks, dear God. And we pray that with the power of your Holy Spirit we will be the Christians and the disciples you've called us to be and together, we will be your church, walking with your world, because everyone in it is loved by you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our altar is open, and as we sing our closing song, it's a great opportunity to kneel down and thank God for those people that God placed in your life. And a great opportunity to kneel down and pray to God for those people that God's placed 
you in their lives. Will you stand as we sing?